Hey everyone, welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening and supporting this podcast. This week's episode is all about sweat, smelling it, hiding it, and people whose job it is to decide what the nature of yours is like. Never let them see you sweat, right? Not this week. And before I forget, this is the second in our special Women in Science series sponsored by the American Geophysical Union's Sharing Science Grant. So a big shout out thank you to them. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode with sweat. I spent my youth not sweating and instead overheating in the hot Florida summers. Then when I became a runner, it seemed I couldn't stop sweating, like the faucets finally got turned on. And now that injuries have prevented me from running, the sweat has dried up like the Colorado River and I'm back to dangerously overheating in hot weather. Imagine my surprise when I learned from this week's guest, author Sarah Everts, that indeed the body can be trained or lose the ability to sweat. She wrote The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. And she's also a science journalism professor and chair of digital science journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa. This book is incredible, and so is my conversation with her. So let's get to it. All right, everybody, I am so excited. I want to welcome uh, Sarah Everts to the show. She's the author of The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. Welcome. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I you know, I really love this book for so many reasons, and I'm so excited to be able to kind of dig into the topic with you. But before we get there, you know, uh, you have such a diverse background. I mean, you have a master's in chemistry, you have a background in physics, and, and you're a science journalist and, and now chair of the digital science journalism um, division at Carleton University in Ottawa. And I'm always curious about people's journey. Can you share a little bit about what led you to become interested in writing about science? Yeah, well, I've always really loved science. Um, you know, even as a kid, I knew I wanted to be a scientist or study science when I went to university. And uh, the thing was, is when it came down to doing science, that was where my attention started to waver. So I had the real you know, privilege and an and opportunity to work in a lab every summer of my undergrad. And, you know, the same thing happened every year. I would be super excited. I think about my project, I get my hands wet. And then by the end of the four months, I'd be kind of bored and, and, and wishing I was doing something else. And so, you know, when it was time to go to grad school, I thought, okay, um, clearly, like, I'm not passionate about physics. So I, I need to, you know, study some other part of science. So I went into chemistry and like the same thing happened, you know, after a few months of, of working on my master's project. I started to wander. Um, and at the time, I was actually, you know, working towards a doctorate. And, uh, you know, at, at some point in your life, um, you know, it, it's kind of, I, I like to make the analogy to dating, right? Uh, when you encounter the same problems with every relationship, initially when you're young, you're like, oh, it's the other person. But, you know, after a while, you realize, no, if it's always happening, it's probably me. And I kind of, that that happened to me in my career. And, and I thought, okay, listen, you know, I do love science. I love it very much. I, I really like to nerd out, but, you know, doing it is not my passion. Uh, knowing about it is. And so that's when I, I, I decided, okay, listen, I, I need to leave my, my PhD program, get a master's and, and figure out what the heck I'm going to do with my life. Um, and at the time that involved a lot of traveling and uh, to make money while I traveled, I, I took these science writing contracts. So I, you know, explained science for government agencies at, at layperson levels so that they could explain to the public 
public, you know, what public funds were going towards. Um, I was a, a ghostwriter on another contract for um, researchers who were writing big grants. Um, and it, you know, I would I would do these contracts and then I'd travel. And, you know, in, in one of my travels, I ended up in a, a really cool cave. Um, and I ended up writing a, a travel story about it. And then I was like, aha, okay. <laughs> now, now I know what I want to do with my life. And I went back to school and did a master's in journalism. And, and here we are. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, what's beautiful about writing, right, is that you can spend time on a project and then get a new project. Yeah. Another new project. And so, so I, you know, what you're saying resonates with me because I, I sort of, I mean, I think I'm a good scientist, but I'm a bad scientist at the same time because a lot of scientists, as you know, they might study one species for their entire career or they might be focused on one question for their entire career. And I'm sort of like, ooh, ooh, that's glittering over there. <laughs> I, I, I feel Pretty. done with this and I wanna go there. And it's really uh, tricky when let's say you study social vertebrates and social behavior and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm really interested in how animals navigate. I think I wanna do that. And you don't have any background and, and there's sort of a, this sort of problem of getting your foot in the door when it comes to publishing in different areas of research. But I have found then that, you know, what I really loved was sitting out and watching animals and getting information. And if I publish a paper, that's great. But I really like telling people about what other animals are doing and why they're doing the things they're doing. So that's where sort of I've converged in this same space as you, where I love writing and I love the communication of science because it lets me move from project to project and follow glittering trails. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that there's some real parallels to um, what scientists do and, and what, for example, journalists do. And both are fact based in the same in the sense that like facts are the currency. Right. You you strive for the truth. You strive to like learn stuff and to share and to discover factual information. That's that's like the most important thing to both scientists and, and to journalists. But where things diverge is, you know, where you you spend your time and, and and how you frame it and what your perspective is like to be a good scientist you have to go and focus in very carefully on the details and and like ad nauseum in order to to do it right whereas as a journalist or a science communicator your job is to like really step back and and provide the context um yeah and that's uh, sometimes why many scientists aren't that great at communicating their science because we're so it's so ingrained to go so deep in yeah. ad nauseum into the details and that doesn't sometimes translate well but speaking of following glittering trails. Um, how did you decide to write about perspiration? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, seriously, why would you do that? Um, so I think like many humans, perhaps most humans, um, I sort of have a mercurial relationship with my own sweat. I like, I'm like, what is this? Um, and, you know, sometimes I worry, you know, that I sweat too much. I, I'm that person at hot yoga that's like peering around, looking to see if anybody else is dripping on their yoga mat when I should be all zen and focusing on my downward dog. Um, so, you know, but I'm also a science journalist and I, you know, I've spoken to enough evolutionary biologists to know that, you know, sweat is one of the amazing unique features about being human you know sweating bountifully is what we do really well and and it's kind of our superpower in that um you know we can exercise and and work really hard and cool down at the same time and so you know at, I thought, listen, I have to find uh, some serenity uh, instead of shame and all the sweating that I do. And um, I'm going to dig into this as a, as a journalist. And, and when I did, I found out there were so many interesting tidbits about this weird, quirky thing that humans do that uh, suddenly a book popped out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love it. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I have, I will say this, so I'm sort of the opposite because mm -hmm. you said you're a, a profuse sweater yes. in certain, can, cer certain circumstances. And I 
have always, even as a young person, and this it might be why I, I, I was so thrilled with your book too, is like overheated, like to the point where I almost die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I feel like there must be a, a wire trip in my system that, that doesn't automatically sweat properly to cool down and or i've noticed you know i can cool down as long as i haven't eaten a meal somehow if i've eaten and then i i it's too soon and i get too hot that's it i will i will overheat and turn beet red and it's quite dangerous i've actually almost not survived especially in the deserts of tucson (laughs) okay oh no oh oh yes Uh, i mean literally overheated in an apartment with 101 fever for three days because i dehydrated so much i mean the desert is not my environment for sure but when i used to be a runner because you talk about this in the book about training your body can be trained to sweat when i was a runner I somehow the switch got flipped on and I loved sweating. It was like, I felt powerful because I could sweat and I was no longer this weak, you know, human who couldn't ride a bike for more than 10 minutes in the summer without getting sick. Um, How is it that we we can train our bodies to sweat and can we train them to sweat less? No. Unfortunately not. <laughs> we can train them to sweat more, right? Because so the, the reason we sweat at all is, you know, to cool down because the um, evaporation of water on the surface of our skin, our body heat is literally evaporating that water away. Like um, you evaporate down a, a sauce um, and that body heat is whisked out into the atmosphere. And so um, it is, uh, you know, to you know, we need to do this to, to survive. Like death by heat stroke is a horrible way to die. And, um, and so our body can learn to sweat more. And in fact, uh, professional athletes, um, people who work in saunas, uh, talk about how the, the fact that they spend so much time uh, either in a hot place or doing very intense exercise means that they often will sweat sooner and more voluminously than they did prior to this. And, and in fact, before the Olympics in Tokyo this past summer, um, many athletes were doing special kind of training to make themselves sweat sooner and faster because, you know, they want to operate at their maximum and at their best performance without overheating. And so, you know, the only way to do that is to sweat profusely so that you have this cool down mechanism. So our body can acclimatize or acclimate to either intense exercise or to hot weather and it can learn to sweat more, but yeah, it doesn't ever learn to sweat less. (laughs) You can't forcibly do that. Okay. Uh, So for all the sweaters out there, so sorry. Now for me, I mean, I think we sweat differently in different environments. That was something you brought up. And so in Tucson, in the desert, you really don't notice necessarily that you're sweating because it's gone immediately as soon as it leaves your your um, eccrine glands, is that right? Yeah, we're gonna talk about the different glands, but um, I always felt like I was desiccating, you know, in in the desert, just shriveling like a a piece of flesh left out (laughs) in the hot burning sun. And I would never survive in a sauna. I mean, I can barely even handle hot tubs. You went to Finland where saunas are a big deal for them. What's the obsession with saunas in Finland? <laughs> well, I think you know there is a certain catharsis uh, that some of us get uh, when when you go and and sweat in in high amounts. Um, it's actually similar to uh, a runner's high. Um, so when you uh, go into a sauna, your body temperature spikes, and as a result, uh, you know your 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 veins push up against the skin and uh, lots of sweat comes uh, pouring out and you're you're evaporating that sweat to cool down and effectively what's happening is because um, you need to cool down the blood that is coming from your hot interior to this you know up against your skin um, 
effectively because you have to cool that down, um, your heart is pumping a lot of blood so that you you get the hot blood from your, your hot interior out to the surface of your skin to cool down by evaporative cooling and then to swirl back into to your core. And that exercise for your heart is actually similar to aerobic exercise that you would get on a run. You are not you know, burning as many calories, you're not, you know, building muscle, but you are working out your heart and you get the knockdown happy hormones um, released that you get when you're out for a run. So you get endorphins. Um, there's also epinephrine that gets released. And so that you, you get a happy feeling um, when you go, some of us do, if you can survive the heat in the same way that if you can survive that run, you get the happy feeling uh, thereafter um, that comes, you know, from from those those hormones released. OK, I might have might have experienced a tad bit of that. I was recently in Iceland and they have the hot springs or their yes. saunas, right? Yes. Well, I had to go from the, the baby one at certain temperature. Then I had to graduate <laughs> to the kitty one. And uh -huh. then I congratulations. Yeah. And then I made it. I made it into the grown up thermal pool. <laughs> Not the hot tub, but the grown up thermal pool. And it was but I think it was also I got to keep a portion of my body out in the cold air. So mm -hmm. I was able to better regulate, um, you know, and stay in it for quite some time. Normally, like if I were to ever go in a hot tub, I'm like five minutes max and then I got to get out or I'm just nauseous. Like that's all that happens. I just get nauseous. <laughs> and so I was able to relax and it was very pleasant. I did not get any kind of endorphin rush, but that explains, did you experience that when you? Oh yes. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yes. Because you are, you are fighting in the same way that, you know, when you're, you're going for a run or doing some pretty intensive exercise, you are struggling. Right. And then it's like, once you make it through that struggle, that's when you get that rush. Um, yes. And I think it's your body, you know, trying to, you know, encourage you to do exercise <laughs> because it's good for you. Right. right. Um, right. But yeah, you get you get that uh, from from going uh, into a sauna for a really long time and then, you know, coming out and you have that great sense of release and accomplishment. Well, what they were doing in Iceland is they would go in the hot thermal pool, then into the sauna and mm -hmm. then jump into the icy lake. Yes. <gasps> yes. This is just <laughs> insanity. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, speaking, speaking of a little bit of insanity, uh, you start off the book with a mystery, a very great mystery about colored sweat and um, a woman who was perspiring red sweat. And, and we often say that you are what you eat, but sometimes you sweat what you eat. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process and, and what happened to this woman? Sure. So this woman was a nurse and uh, she started to notice that in her armpits and around her collar, her white nurse's outfit would turn red, like red. And her underwear was turning red and her and, you know, this is alarming to the best of us, right? Like, yes. you know, your sweat is this translucent thing. It, it shouldn't be colored. Um, but for her, it was also kind of professionally alarming because, you know, part of your identity as a nurse is, you know, there's notions of hygiene and, you know, having red, <laughs> wet armpits is a little, little creepy, I think, um, to, to patients. So anyway, she, she goes to a dermatologist and is like, what the heck is going on? And she's young. They do all sorts of uh, experiments and, you know, to see if there's something going on in, in, in her health. And she's super duper healthy, red sweat notwithstanding. And, and in fact, uh, she's coming to a follow-up appointment where uh, the, the team is, you know, about to tell her, listen, we cannot figure out what the heck's going on with you. When she shows up at the appointment and her fingers are kind of stained, like a reddish brown, sort of like how people who roll their own cigarettes get kind of a, a tobacco stain on, on their fingers. And when she shows up, the, the doctors know that she's not a smoker. And so they're like, what, what's on your hands? Like, what's on your fingers? And she had just come from a pre-appointment snack. And her favorite snack was this spicy tomato corn chip. And um, they're, they're like, there's, so that's corn chip? 
residue on your on your finger? And she's like, yes. And they're like, um, how much of these uh, bags of corn chips are you eating? Turns out she had an like utter predilection. Like, in fact, they called it a fetish. She was like effectively eating 45 bags of chips a week. And what was going on was that the tomato flavoring and dye that was in the corn chip was actually percolating out with her sweat. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and that's and that's because um, our sweat, believe it or not, is just the watery parts of blood. When we get the cool down directive, uh, our veins push up against our skin. That's why some of us who have uh, light skin turn red because literally there's tons of blood rushing by. And, you know, those sweat glands just pull out the watery parts of blood. They filter out the red blood cells, the immune cells, the big stuff. And so that's why our, our sweat is salty because, you know, we're salty oceans inside, our blood is salty. Um, and anything that's, you know, circulating in our blood um, from hormones to glucose to all sorts of other things, uh, our, our vices um, are also coming out for the ride, um, including this red tomato dye. And so once they figured out that this was probably what it was, uh, they put her on an elimination diet and lo and behold, her red sweat disappeared and you know she went back to just you know the usual complaints about <laughs> about sweat wow you know it's interesting i have some experience with this phenomenon and i but i didn't think about it as coming from my sweat glands right like um i well or the person i was dating he smelled like cheese a lot <laughs> i mean like when he sweated right like he smelled like cheese and and i i don't i don't know if it was because he ate a lot of cheese or if that was just his particular odor. microbiome well yes. i think we're going to talk about microbiome in a minute yeah um um that's all those juicy bacteria that are living all over our skin and in our armpits and other um hidey places so but i'd also remember working at a gym when i was in in undergrad and there was this woman who ate a lot of fish and when she sweated she smelled like fish and I remember much later, I started taking fish oil supplements um, because I, I became, um, you know, not eating meat. And, and then it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm taking fish oil supplements instead of eating fish. But, you know, cognitive dissonance aside, um, <laughs> uh, I, I no longer take those fish oil supplements. What started happening, I noticed about six months later, was that my palms smelled like fish. Like all of a sudden I'd be like, people can't see me sniffing my hands. I'm sniffing my hands going, why? I was basically leaking fish oil out of my hands. And hopefully that was the only place that it was coming out of. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm curious since writing this book, are you more attuned uh, to how others smell? Oh, I'm always attuned to how others smell. Um, I, I have a really sensitive nose, and so I'm always very curious. Uh, so I'm always smelling everything, not just people. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I really like things. Um, I, I, I like the um, uh, olfactory experience. But yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the reality of the situation is that, you know, you have a hard night of hummus and you smell like garlic the next day. You drink too much. You smell like alcohol the next day. You know, all of this stuff is, you know, in our system and until it gets, you know, cleaned up by our liver and our kidneys, um, it's flowing around and uh, percolating out of our pores. Yeah. Well, so that means, and a little bit later, we're going to talk about everything we can find out about others by their smell. But because I, I study other species, I really enjoyed your comparison because we sweat and other animals sweat, but they do it differently. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have these apocrine glands and we have these eccrine glands and we both have them. So us and let's say elephants and horses and cows, and but we don't use them the same way. Can you give us a little bit of information about the difference between those two? Yeah. So, I mean, evolutionary, 
is evolution is crafty, right? It likes to, you know, reuse um, as it sees fit. But we have, as humans, two kinds of sweat glands. So there's the eccrine sweat glands, which are responsible for those salty floods. These are entirely in humans responsible for cooling us down. Um, it dispatches water to our skin surface for evaporation. Um, but we have another kind of sweat gland that's responsible for our stink, our body odor, and that's uh, the apocrine gland. And typically they become functional at puberty. And uh, instead of sweating salty, watery floods, uh, the apocrine gland um, sweat is more waxy. It's actually more similar to earwax. And it actually comes out relatively odorless, but it's the bacteria living in and on our body um, our microbiome that metabolizes um, this uh, apocrine sweat and, you know, it's metabolites, which is just like a scientific euphemism for poop is why we have a body odor print, right? Um, that kind of thing that makes you smell like you and me smell like me and allows dogs to, you know, track your scent based on your t-shirt compared to me. Right. Um, now animals uh, <clears throat> have uh, many animals, particularly mammals, also have apocrine glands, and they use these glands primarily for communication. So this is the stuff that makes humans stinky. It also makes them stinky. And what is going on in the animal kingdom is that they're using this to communicate information. Um, and, you know, humans have evolved language, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there, researchers who think that, you know, some of that body odor is kind of a vestigial way to communicate information, even though language has, you know, at least in, in our species dominated um, the way that we, you know, share information with each other. Right. Um, but uh, some animals like horses and cows use uh, their apocrine sweat, that, that stuff that's the stinky stuff, um, to cool down. Um, but they don't sweat as profusely and voluminously as we do by far. We are the best and most voluminous sweaters. <laughs> and it's partly because we're naked, right? right. So when you want to cool evaporatively, when you want to literally whisk body heat away up and into the atmosphere by evaporating water on your skin, that works best on naked surfaces. And we are the naked ape, right? Yeah. And so most animals that that use this either are relatively short haired like a horse mm -hmm. or they rely on evaporative cooling on their most naked surface. Like dogs will pant, they evaporate away saliva off, you know, their most naked real estate, which is their tiny tongue. Um, <laughs> right. we, we cool down so much better because we've got that much more real estate off of right. which we can evaporate. Yeah. Well, and we have a lot of reasons to be grateful because some animals like bees apparently barf on themselves to cool yeah. down. So it's one of those like, thank goodness we're human <laughs> moments. It, you know, um, I find it interesting because I I am of the belief that we underestimate how much information we get from smelling. I'm a big sniffer, too. And I'm a big sniffer in the romance department. Um, so I always would tell my students, you know, oh, you didn't see them across the room and fall in love. You smelled them across the room. And and uh, you participated in a, a sniffing love event. Um, and I am just dying to know what that was and who and, and tell us about number 15, because I have yeah. my own number 15 and we'll talk about him in a minute. But what was this uh, matchmaking Sweat event? Dating. Sweat yes. dating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, in this era where we're all swiping left and right on our phones uh, to find a date, uh, sweat dating operates on a more analog premise, namely, you know, we are ultimately going to sniff the body odor of our lovers, whether it's a one night stand or a forever match. Um, and that is going to be a make or break moment. Um, and given that it's going to be a make or break moment, why not use body odor as, you know, your triage for deciding who should be your date instead of, you know, optics or, you know, shared hobbies. And what this means in practice is that uh, you show up at one of these events and the first thing uh, you do is you're given a wet wipe and you wipe off any products that you've put on, perfume, deodorant, that sort of thing. Then you participate in kind of like a high 
inter, you know, high activity, like uh, high intensity interval training, uh, jumping jacks, burpees, you work up a sweat. And once you're all sweaty, uh, you're given a cotton pad that you dab uh, at your parts. And then you put that in a glass jar and you know the number of your own jar and the organizers do, but nobody else does. And these jars are set on a table and then everybody's invited to sniff through them. And uh, (laughs) then you uh, are asked to pick your top five. And based on, you know, if I picked your body odor and you picked my body odor, then we would be a match. And this being Moscow, uh, this happens all over the world, but I went to one in, in Russia. Uh, we're, if we're a match, we get a VIP bracelet to an all-you-can-drink vodka cocktail lounge so that we can, you know, meet up and assess whether the other criteria uh, like, you know, optics and, you know, shared hobbies also work out. It was surreal. Uh, you know, when you're sniffing through these jars, I mean, quite honestly, uh, some of them were horrifically appalling. Um, I just was like, I cannot ever sniff that body odor again. Please go away. Um, and, th- and then some of them were very, um, it's kind of hard to explain, like almost nostalgic, like pleasant. Like I could definitely identify it as another human. And it wasn't like, but it, it was like something familiar. Um, and what's interesting about that is, you know, there, there's a lot of research that, you know, we're sniffing um, out other humans, not just for romance, but but for friendships. There's a really interesting study that just came out this summer after the book published um, that showed that BFFs, people who become fast friends, when their body odor is collected and presented to a panel of noses um, and electronic noses, so human and, and digital, that their body odor is more similar than two people at random, right? So we're right. actually even just with friendship, sniffing out people who kind of smell like us, um, right. not just are like us. Anyway, so that some some of the people that you're you're smelling, it's kind of just nice. You're like, yeah, I like that. Like I want yeah. to hang out with that person, right. maybe romantically, maybe just platonically. And then there was number 59. (laughs) And then, whoa, like, like, I can't even explain it. It was just like all these things in my brain just got like turned on, triggered. Um, And it wasn't like I became a sex automaton, but it was like, I was like, there is this thing that is very nice to do with another person. (laughs) Often happens in bed when one is naked. Um, And, and like, and that was number 15. And I was so like, you know, reporters have like little notebooks. I like wrote 15 in a very, like it took up a whole page and I put exclamation marks and I had to turn a page to continue to, taking notes. Um, but yeah, I didn't match with 15. I did match with number with this beautiful woman actually, um, who I quite liked. I mean, I'm a a heterosexual female. Like I, I don't actually prefer women typically, but like, um, I matched with this woman and we hung out and it was fun. Um, but yeah, number 15 was elusive, which, you know, just goes to show that, you know, sometimes yeah it doesn't work out i know we don't match i didn't match with my number 15 but i swear i could smell them a mile away Mm. i mean my you know briefly dated and the 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 smell like you know i probably could still smell if he arrived in the state of arizona like my (laughs) my radar would just be like he's here he's here somewhere where is he now i've also been madly in love with gorillas and word on, yeah, word in the forest is that uh, a fellow biologist of mine informed me that silverbacks smell delicious. Really? This was her experience and that other people have noted this as well, that they smell really good. And so I'm hoping I can find out for myself. I mean, I I don't want a silverback to be my 15, but you know, (laughs) I would like the experience um, because I, I typically like when I go out on a date, I won't before I, you know, you know, you hug or whatever. Even when you meet somebody, sometimes it's an audible sniff, which is a little embarrassing because I've actually had men go, did you just smell me? And I'm like, I did. Like, I'm sorry. I just had to know if this is going to go anywhere. <laughs> well, you know, people do that. I mean, there's a really interesting study uh, out of Noam Sobel's lab in the Wiseman Institute in, in Israel. And what he did was when uh, they, he and his grad student um, videotaped people meeting for the first time. And uh, in fact, shaking hands. And what they noticed was that after people 
meet a new person for the first time, shake their hands. They then sniff their hands surreptitiously afterwards. And most often it's unconscious because when they actually showed their study stub- subjects, the videos thereafter, they, the subjects were like, I didn't do that. Uh, and accused them of like fabricating video. And they're like, we don't have that capability. We're just like, you know, chemosensory scientists. Um, so yeah, I mean, most human greetings involve, uh, at least pre-COVID, involve human like proximity, right? So whether it's, um, you know, hugging or cheek kissing or bowing, you become suddenly very close where you can take a little sniff, uh, surreptitious or in your case, not. Um, (laughs) Or, you know, there's, you know, the handshake, which is a literal hands-on collection of of other people's body odor, which you can then like, you know, sniff at your own. (laughs) (laughs) Discretion. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, so speaking of hands and so our palms sweat, right? And and, and this, all that speaks to to me is we are clearly still, you know, evolutionarily primed to get information. Now, maybe that information is about hormone status. Maybe it's about genetics. Maybe it's about health. Maybe it's about um, compatibility in, in some way or familiarity um, or sickness, right? I mean, we can smell sickness um, and, and certain people who are ill give off a different kind of odor, but but sweating through the palms, there was something very fascinating. Um, and again, I'm, this book, The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration, is full of amazing information. But the thing that was very interesting, another thing that was interesting to me was when we sweat through our palms, there's this, you know, it's almost like a unique scent or you know, chemical print, not just a unique fingerprint. So how realistic is it that one can identify an individual based on the sweat they leave behind, as opposed to, you know, say the DNA in a hair follicle or their fingerprint? Yeah, well, uh, a fingerprint is actually just a sweat print, right? And most forensic scientists, um, uh, you know, to date have looked at like the whirls and the swirls, how it looks and compared uh, the visuals to say uh, a database. But because our sweat is, you know, just the watery parts of our blood and is literally got everything that's going on in our blood is, is also coming out in our sweat, um, So now, because um, the sensitivity of of analytical equipment has reached the point where when you look at a fingerprint as a forensic chemist, you don't just now look at the whirls and swirls. You can actually literally lift the chemicals up off that fingerprint and analyze, you know, what was left behind. So, for example, I... Uh, gave an index fingerprint to a a forensic chemist and she very quickly said, okay, listen, I know that you had a morning coffee um, because uh, there's uh, evidence of caffeine, caffeine metabolites uh, are left in your your fingerprint. But had I spiked my morning coffee with a little bit of whiskey um, or (laughs) snorted a line of cocaine as my morning uh, libation, um, that also would have come out in my fingerprint because it would have been swirling around in my bloodstream. And effectively that fingerprint is just a sweat print and sweat is just, you know, the watery parts of blood. And so that's kind of where uh, forensic surveillance and forensic chemistry is going. So this particular scientist has, uh, you know, been working with law enforcement. For example, she lifted uh, the fingerprint of a stalker from a windowsill and could tell that he had been drinking and actually in his case doing cocaine um, when he was stalking uh, the person that he was stalking. Um, But you can also find uh, biomarkers of disease. So some cancers um, and so many things are coming out in in your sweat. And and people are also now trying to figure out, can you identify biological sex? Can you identify, are there age markers? Are there diet markers? So, you know, uh, if you're a vegan, you're going to be eating different things uh, than a meat eater. And that those those chemicals are, are going to be swirling around your blood as your blood, you know, brings whisks, you know, nutrients around around your system. And so, um, I mean, I personally find this both really exciting and both terrifying. It's exciting <laughs> because, you know, he, like everybody else, um, we love, uh, you know, 
bio observations, like everybody and their brother has a Fitbit, right? Well, right. the next you know level of that is not just you know measuring heart rate and steps, but measuring um, you know bits of your chemistry, uh, the, the chemistry of your sweat. So you can imagine like an add on patch to your smartphone or kind of like a band aid um, that contains electronics that sends an alert to your smartphone when you're at the bar and perhaps have drunk too much and, and might need to take a cab. It's like, Sarah, tonight, don't drive. <laughs> or you can imagine, you know, an athletics, um, right. somebody who's training for a marathon, right. Wants to train aerobically. Um, and uh, not anaerobically, like somebody who might be training to sprint and lactate levels in your sweat um, are an indication of whether your exercise is aerobic or anaerobic. So you could get a little push alert saying, oh, you need to slow down on that run because you're training for a marathon, not for a sprint. And, you know, actually that's being dispatched right now uh, on the sidelines of um, team sports where you can imagine um, a coach has an iPad, all the players on the field have one of these patches. And um, when you start getting stressed out physically, your body releases stress hormones. And, you know, the coach on the sideline gets a little push alert saying, oh, player number five, um, you know, has, you know, is, is stressed out, might be time to switch them out for a, a fresh player. So these are the kind of like really cool applications of this kind of technology. The terrifying applications are that, you know, we leave fingerprints everywhere. Um, we leave them in our cubicles at work. Uh, we leave them, you know, on doors. And if it's that easy to lift a fingerprint, which we, we know it is, and that easy to, to analyze the, the chemicals of our blood, and this is such a, a contemporary, a moment-to-moment -moment assessment of what is going on inside you, I mean, I'm terrified that, you know, employers will start doing um, drug tests on their employees or, you know, insurance, um, health insurers will, you know, do secret analyses and, and, you know, say, no, you have, you know, biomarkers of cancer. I'm not going to like insure you. So there, and we leave so many more fingerprints around than even hair right? Um, for, for DNA testing. And, and quite frankly, DNA um, is more sort of uh, like, the blueprint of what could happen where a sweat print is what is happening right now in your body. It's a yeah. little bit more revealing um, right. even than your DNA. Um, yeah. So yeah, this terrifies me because I don't think, uh, you know, privacy experts have thought this through. Um, and I really would like to see, you know, measures put in place by, by the government to prevent, you know, people with power, including the government from, you know, doing these kinds of analyses without right. consent. Well, my palms were starting to sweat as you were talking. <laughs> and because, uh, you know, I was thinking about, oh, yeah, well, you know, you, my, my palms sweat sometimes. And I would, I mean, even if they didn't noticeably, you're always leaving that information. That also struck me as I wonder if that's how other animals like dogs or cats are smelling cancer. If that's the mechanism, oh, yeah. right? Because they haven't quite described how they do it. They just know that they can do it. And so I'm wondering if they're smelling it in our secretions. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that, that that's how it must be happening because, you know, um, you know, when you are sick in, in any sort of way, there's always a biomarker for that. Right. right. And uh, our blood is, you know, the highway of our body. Um, it's the thing that's, you know, bringing everything from point A to point B. And so if sweat is just the liquidy parts of blood, then it makes sense that that is, you know, where we're leaking out this information that right. other animals are, are smelling. Right. It's interesting. You know, I remember um, speaking of other animals when I was in the field, I would take fewer showers because it seemed to me or someone told me that other animals would be less nervous um, if they couldn't smell perfumey, smelly soap. Um, <clears throat> And I don't know if this was true, but I did have uh, loads of animals not realize I was there until they were too close you know, even for my taste, actually, sort of, we were like, they were shocked, you know, I mean, that they were just kind of, and I, maybe the wind was blowing in my favor in that, in that scenario. Uh, but my housemate did not appreciate 
this approach and and i remember she pulled me aside i don't know how many days it had been and she was like jennifer it's time to take a shower <laughs> um and and that i understand and that's different and you know i'm sort of shifting gears here to that cultural narrative of we shouldn't smell and you know if we get all of this information about smell, you know, privacy concerns and ethics that come with advanced technology that we sort of play catch up with as humans, um, setting that aside, you know, when did we start acting so strangely about trying to alter or get rid of our, our, our odor? Like who decided that smelling like we smell is bad and, you know, I, and I don't know if it was more targeted at women than men. Yeah. So I have uh, so many thoughts about this. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, what's really interesting is that, you know, for most of human history, um, we've relied on just washing and perfume. Right. But you know, human stink has been something that people have kind of worried about. So uh, one of my favorite all-time quotes comes from uh, the Roman poet Catullus to his friend and then his nemesis, this guy named Rufus. And this is like 2000 years ago. This is like ancient Rome. And he says, wonder not Rufus, why none of the opposite sex wishes to place her dainty thighs beneath you. Not even if you undermine her virtue with gifts of choice silk or the enticement of a pellucid gem. You are being hurt by an ugly rumor, which asserts that beneath your armpits dwells a ferocious goat. <laughs> this they fear and no wonder for it's a right rank beast that no pretty girl will go to bed with. So either get rid of this painful affront to the nostrils or cease to wonder why the ladies flee. Wow. <laughs> I love this because like it, it's like, you know, 2000 years ago, it's like snap, dude, go take a shower. It's like yeah, friend, my friend, you got a goat in your armpit. You need to, you you need to take a shower. <laughs> so, you know, there's it, it's this funny thing. Like, I don't want to say that, you know, in our modern times, you know, it's new that we tell our friends dude, you need to shower. But I do think that um, it's at a whole nother level, right? So a hundred years ago, before the deodorant and any perspirant industry had a $75 billion market share of our you know, pocket money, you know, most people just you know, showered with some regularity, maybe even just once a week, and, you know, would put on some perfume. And I think it's a lot like smoke, like cigarette smoke. So like 20 years ago, you know, there was people were smoking everywhere, or maybe even 30 years ago. And so it was common to just smell smoke all the time. And, you know, now, because we're so used to these smokeless environments, when you go to a bar that's smoky, or you go to a place where there's a lot of of cigarette smoke, you really, really notice it. And I think because for the last 100 years, we've been told by the deodorant and any perspirant industry that if you don't completely control your body odor, like really like eradicate it to zero and replace it with the smell of a citrus flower or a beautiful, you know, I don't know, <laughs> rose, old spice, right? Yeah. If you don't replace your body odor with this other odor that you are going to suffer social humiliation and exclusion. And so I think, you know, we have, you know, as a society, uh, particularly in North America, gotten used to, you know, not smelling the body odor of our friends and family as much as in the past. And I think that because we're used to that, you know, it's so much more of a shock in the same way that when we smell, you know, cigarette odor and I much prefer body odors <laughs> to yes. that. But I do think it's like, it's what we're, we're used to. Um, and, and, you know, quite honestly, like it was like this brilliant marketing strategy in the, you know, 1919s and then the 1920s that, you know, convinced uh, Americans that body odor, you know, was was, you know, something that was effectively going to destroy your life's trajectory. And so you really shouldn't, you know, right. have it. Right. Well, and, and some of the chemicals initially used like formaldehyde, which I, I mean, you know, when I read that, I was just like, 
oh gosh, you know, pickle those armpits, like well, literally, right. you know, to the and, point where it's, you know, you're going to also give yourself cancer. Right. Um, and I think what some people maybe don't appreciate, right, is that we have this microbiome all over our body. I mean, I participated in a belly button microbiome experiment. Yeah, it was awesome. And I got a little picture of my belly button biome. I had six species in there. And, you know, and I, I there's an armpit biodiversity uh, project that goes on at NC State, and they're comparing humans with uh, gorillas. Uh, I guess, you know, somebody got to smell the gorilla. I should maybe <laughs> see. Anyway, sorry, I, I digress. I got a little, you know, <laughs> distracted. Um, so... You know, I think that all of these products alter our microbiome and and maybe I don't know if it's true. I don't know if you have any information about this, maybe not necessarily in the the best way, um, you know, or our microbiome can change with who we live with, who we sleep with, um, you know, and and how effective is really I mean, is deodorant or antiperspirant harming that microbiome? Do you know? Yeah. Well, so the the way that um, deodorant works is it's just literally antiseptic for your armpit because uh, your body odor is bacteria eating that apocrine sweat and then them turning it into stink. The way that deodorants work is they just effectively kill the bacteria in your armpit. Primarily, um, the target is corinobacteria, but they kill all the bacteria in your armpit. Um, and for a time, until they bounce back, uh, prevent that bacteria from eating your sweat and giving you some body odor. Antiperspirant, um, clogs the pores. So in effect, it's taking away the buffet of tasty treats to that bacteria that they cannot, you know, then transform into stink. And so, you know, I mean, you could argue that antiseptic, you know, in your armpit is, you know, not the best thing, but, you know, your body odor does bounce back. Um, and we are, we have a pretty strong, you know, like typically if you were, you know, your microbiome is a pretty strong, stable thing because, you know, your ecosystem of your armpit, right? Your your sebaceous glands are making like little tasty treats. Like effectively, it's like a happy little equilibrium Um but, you know, I do wonder what kind of messages writ large we're missing from other people because we're constantly dialing down um, our body odor. Like, what more could we know about, you know, our, the people around us right. um, if, we, if we weren't doing this uh, so consistently? Well, yeah. And maybe somebody who has armpits that smell like goats could get a microbiome transplant, like a fecal transplant, you know, rub their armpit against someone else's armpit. <laughs> well, people are looking <laughs> and, into this. <laughs> and those and those bacteria can duke it out and we'll see who wins, the goat or the more, you know, pleasant, nostalgic smelling. Um, right. In the meantime, the perfume industry, you know, it's not new. And it was well before, you know, the the sort of marketing campaign for deodorant or antiperspirant. And it has roots going all the way back to the Egyptians. Now, like the Egyptians, they would be trending right now. I mean, they basically did sugaring to remove all their hair. <laughs> right. And that was for uh, typically for lice, uh, you know, basically take all the hair off. So you have no parasites. Um, but they also apparently were fans of masking their odors. And, and you had the chance to visit um, something called an Osmotech. Osmotech. Osmotech, which is like, um, it's like a library of smells. Uh, is that, would that be a good description? Uh, yeah, I would probably are an archive, archive. of ancient perfume. Um, okay. So uh, it, it effectively um, is a place where, uh, you know, it, when, um, for example, like a fashion designer wants to get inspiration for, you know, some new design, you know, they go to a textile museum and, and can look at things from history. Uh, and what um, this man, uh, Jean Calliot, uh in France realized was that the same did not exist for perfumiers. And, you know, he was a, a very famous perfumier, um, invented a bunch of blockbuster scents. And as he reached uh, retirement, came up with this uh, idea to try and recreate scents of the past, um, 
And, you know, one of the first scent uh, was this uh, very famous uh, odor of uh, like Parthenian royalty, um, which is, you know, where modern day Iran is. And um, and he, you know, recreated it from ancient recipes and, you know, let me have a sniff. And it was so rich. Uh, it actually smelled like like incense and apple crisp. Wow. <laughs> like, again, like it was like it, it reminded me of being in like a Catholic church. Right. Which mm -hmm. um, just speaks to the fact that, you know, modern day. Christianity uh, borrowed from much more ancient practices, um, much, much more ancient practices when, you know, they came up with the sense, um, their religious sense. Uh, but also there was like this element of food and, um, you know, uh, many ancient um, Romans also, you know, had sense that were related to food, like rose water. If you think about, you know, rose water or um, orange water, um, this still um, percolates uh, the food of um, the Middle East. Anyway, yeah, ancient <laughs> scents are, are, are the best. Uh, he also like gave me um, to smell this perfume worn by uh, body kind of body snatchers of the plague era. Um, oh, wow. L'odeur um, of the cat photo. Like, it's like the, the perfume of the four um, thieves. So, you know, effectively, these, these thieves would, during the plague era, um, go to plague victims' houses and as they were dying, would steal from them in their most, you know, vulnerable state. Like, horrible people. Like, right. the worst people. Um, and when they were ultimately caught, uh, like, law enforcement at the time was like, how is it that you don't have the plague? Like, how is it that you are, you know, stealing from these people who are, you know, dying and somehow avoiding it yourself? And, you know, um, they were given a, a less harsh sentence by uh, divulging the perfume that they wore, which actually smelled like kind of like salad dressing vinegar. It was super vinegary. Okay. And, you know, probably, you know, we use vinegar as an antiseptic now. Right. And right. who knows, like this was before the era that we understood even, you know, that plagues were caused by microbes and that you could kill them with antiseptics. Right. But, you know, kind of through lived experience, these thieves realized that if they put this vinegar kind of scent on or used it heavily, they could, you know, survive um, stealing from vulnerable people and, and not getting the plague themselves. Wow. That's really fascinating. And, you know, it's funny when I think about perfume, I mean, not all perfume smells the same, like the same perfume will smell different on different people. Yes. And, right. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that has to do with your particular microbiome makeup and, you know, the interaction of your scent with uh, an, another scent. Um, but Boy, smelling like apple crisp, that sounds like maybe it'd be appealing, right? It's like you're like a walking apple pie. Um, yep. So, so, so cute. <laughs> um, there are a lot of other characters you met, and, and some were obsessed with smell as well, and also have a highly attuned sense of smell. What is smell art? <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's wonderful people out there who instead of using, you know, color um, or, you know, physical objects as their palette, you know, for making sculpture or, you know, painting a picture, um, instead use sense as their palette. Um, and, you know, one of those people uh, I think you're alluding to is, is Cecil Tolas, who effectively uh, likes to use scent to make both art and, and, and political statements, frankly. So she thinks that, you know, we spend too much time worrying about so-called negative sense that we, that we've like compartmentalized good and bad odors when we should just be, you know, evaluating odors, um, as they are. And, uh, the project that I love most, uh, is the one where she, effectively reached out to psychologists who deal with um, people that have anxiety odors. And she collected the body odor scent of people with extreme anxiety disorders. And then as a trained perfumier herself, recreated these body odor scents from the palette of thousands of, of jars of, of, you know, basic scents that she has. And, you know, these, these perfumes are like, 
you know, representations of different individual BO. And uh, it's pretty pongy. It's strong stuff. Um, and she sometimes she's this glorious Scandinavian woman, super tall, like Cleopatra haircut, um, Amazonian, kind of terrifyingly beautiful. And then she'll put on her own uh, concoctions, including these like body odor sense of like clinically anxious men and, you know, go, go to an evening wearing a cocktail dress and then stinking of these dudes and, uh, you know, kind of does it as a, you know, kind of like a performance art. Right. Wow. That is, that's really creative. I, I never in a million years would I have ever had that, that idea. And speaking of body odor, I, I want to finish with you, you gave up your armpit. You gave up your armpit. <laughs> I donated it to science. You did. You did. I gave up my belly button. I have not given up my armpit. Nobody was actually going to, if I did, nobody's actually going to put their nose to my armpit or a, a, a particular type of, um, I forget the name of the tool that was used. What was that experience like for you? Being, being usually you're, you were saying you're, you're really attuned to smell and, and you like to sniff lots of things. And now you were the one being sniffed. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, in the process of, of doing uh, research for this book, uh, I, I discovered there are people who are professional noses. Like it is their job to use their nose um, day in, day out. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> I have to meet these people. And not only that, like sometimes they're called upon to, you know, sniff a a company's new line of, you know, coffee roasts or whiskeys. Sometimes they're called upon by a diaper company to see if, you know, their new odor sequestering, you know, material is is working uh, up to up to snuff, so to speak. Um, and, you know, for deodorant and antiperspirant companies, they are the people that do the experiments that allow these companies to say, you know, works for 24 or 48 hours, right? And in practice, what that means is, you know, there are uh, sweat um, subjects uh, and we have two armpits, you know, right. science loves twos, right? You right. have the control and then the, you know, experimental armpit. Right. And While controlling for the individual. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so what, what happens is uh, these individuals, you know, put the product in one armpit and either don't put a product or put a competing product in the other armpit. And then these professionals do a compare and contrast. And in practice, it's, it's kind of hilarious. Like, you know, I love a good experimental protocol. Um, and uh, yeah, it's very regimented. So uh, as the person whose armpit was sniffed, uh, for science, um, you lift your hand and you put it um, behind your head that, you know, sort of opens up your armpit, like you you lift up your armpit to the world. Right. And then the sniffer um, moves in uh, and exactly like six inches or 15 centimeters away, um, leans in. And then they have this like often have this little device. If you've ever had um water from a, you know, like a, you know, like a, a water cooler. Yeah. Sometimes you have these little cone shaped paper cups that you yeah. can drink from. Well, if you imagine that cone with the like little edge popped off and then you have the like short end uh, up against your nose so that like it, it looks kind of like your nose has a cone on it. Right. Okay. <laughs> and and so they're they've got this and they're they're reaching into your uh, armpit and then they do, you know, when they reach the six inches, they do some bunny sniffs, um, short little sniffs to like take in your BO. Um, and then they like move back and you know, allow their nasal passages to clear, and then they move into your other armpit and do the compare and contrast. And you know. I have to say, I was so freaking excited to know that this person exists, that this job exists. And I, you know, like, the, if you know me at all, like, you know, that like, I'm the, I would, I was like, yes, I have to do this. <laughs> but it's only as I'm like, on my way in that I think to myself, holy crap, this woman is about to smell my armpits, like right. intentionally, like, and not just like a passing whiff. She is going to like inhale and, <laughs> and she's a professional nose. And, 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 and I like, just, it was like, I panicked. I like right. went into the bathroom and I slathered on a ton <laughs> of deodorant nanny purse. I like, I, I, I can't, 
it, well, yeah, it was my antiperspirant that day. And I'm, I'm like, what is wrong with me? Um, that like, even, you know, here I am a pro perspiration, odor loving person. And yeah, it was, it was a very nerve wracking experience to, to, to do this, but it was ultimately really fun and she was lovely. And what was really interesting is that for people who are professional noses, much like that odor artist I was talking about, they don't, they don't like consider odors to be like good or bad, like stinky or not stinky. They think about it in terms of intensity, in terms of um, kind of complexity. So more offensive to a odor, a professional odor sniffer, a professional <laughs> nose is a really boring scent, like a scent with just like one top note and nothing else, like right. kind of like dollar store rose water, which is just like, you know, one odor component in a, in a bottle versus the actual smell of, of a rose, which has got like all sorts of different elements and, and, and complexity. Same thing for, for professional nose. She was like, oh, I don't mind human body odor. Um, it's just, you know, yet another smell. And if you are smelling coffee all day, like you are as sick and tired of, of that smell as you are of BO uh, right. by 5 p.m. Right. Wow. Well, you know, that was, I mean, I would say that you made yourself vulnerable in the name of, of your, uh, your pursuit of <laughs> writing this book, uh, in so many ways. And I know you're, you're busy, so I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, everybody, we, we've kind of scratched the surface of, of Have all we scratched of, and sniffed the surface? We've scratched and sniffed the surface. I almost said it. And then I was I'm like, sorry. no, I went there. I know. <laughs> I'm glad you did because I wanted to. Um, the Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration by Sarah Everts. Really, please pick up a copy of this book. It is delightful and fascinating and has, it, I learned so much and, and it was just wonderful to read and discuss. So thank you so much for being here. It's really been my pleasure. The poet Solomon used the perennial herb, nard, to describe the sensual pleasures of his love. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits with henna and nard. Nard is in the honeysuckle family, and it's still used as an essential oil. You might know it as valerian, and it is an in-your-face kind of odor. It's pretty hard for me to imagine that anything with valerian in it smells good, since to me, it smells like smelly feet. For centuries, we've been hard at work masking our natural scent, and let's face it, if I had an angry goat living in my armpit, I probably would be keen to eliminate all traces. But I can't help but think, the nose knows. And we are depriving each other, especially our loved ones, of important information. Whatever you decide to do, remember that a big part of why you smell the way you do is what tasty treats your body makes for all those hungry bacteria. And that will depend on many things, including what you eat. That's all for this week. And tune in next week for our third Women in Science episode featuring Dr. Karen Cooper. Don't forget to check out the show notes to keep up with Sarah Everts. And if you enjoyed this episode, give it a like and share it so others can find it too. Smell you later.